Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Now, as we turn to Daniel chapter 7, we're reading apocalyptic literature this morning. And uh, that means it's going to use some really complex pictures, and I don't know what all of them mean. I don't even think that's, that's the main point, that when we read apocalyptic literature right here, it's really not as much about the minutiae and the small things. It's about a big picture. It's painting for us a portrait that really, really, this is ancient, ancient film, right? This is more a movie for us to watch than it is just for a story for us to hear. And so I want you to try to see the images. It's meant to be felt, not just heard, not just thought about, not just understood, but, but felt. And, and so I'm, I'm praying that the Lord would help you to feel this. Again, for at least one more week, this is going to be a lengthy passage to read. We're going to read the whole chapter. So if you need to sit, there's, there's certainly no shame in that whatsoever. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His thrones were fiery flames, his wills were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousand, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great war- words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season. In a time, I saw in the night visions, and behold, behold, with the clouds of heavens, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and it was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Listen to these words. See if you can identify with them. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. 
These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth and iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth beast on the earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and he shall... Put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him here is the end of the matter as for me Daniel my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, we read those words and we think, what in the world? Such a dramatic scene. So many pictures happening at one time. But Lord, let us remember what Paul told to Timothy. All of these words are breathed out by you and all of these words are profitable for us, your people. In fact, Lord, this, this is a word that we need in our anxious age. We feel like Daniel feels so often. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would zoom out your church, that they could see the big picture of the big story, that they might have a secure, rock-solid hope in Christ. Lord, I pray that people would be calmed today, that people would be comforted today, that people would be encouraged today, that people would be set on fire today. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're living in the information age, aren't we? You have, with this little device, more processing power than the Pentagon had just a short time ago. And when you take that kind of processing power and you match it with a now 24-hour news cycle... I really think it can be a recipe for disaster. If your phone is like mine, throughout the day you get dings and vibrations and, and notifications from news sources all day long. And it's a celebrity divorce followed by a political scandal, followed by a human atrocity, followed by a war in a place that you maybe never have even heard of. You scroll through Facebook, don't you? And what do you see as you scroll through Facebook? You probably see like I do. You see angry people. 
People that are angry about politics and people that are angry about their lives and people that are angry about their jobs, people that are fighting with one another. You scroll, and I, I follow a lot of different funeral homes, occupational hazard, and you see obituary after obituary, and I see how young the faces are. And it just reminds me that everything just seems so, so, so broken. That it, it feels like the more information that I have, the worse the information is, and the more threatening and scary a place this world really is. And so I've come to call this my bad news device. I mean, that's what it is, right? This is my, my bad news box here that I carry with me all the way to make sure that I'm up to date on the latest bad news of the day. And so should it really surprise us that ours is the most anxious generation in history? I mean, this, this is a foregone conclusion. We know this. The, the question is not, are we anxious? The question is, why are we so anxious? Some have proposed that perhaps this generation is just especially weak. I don't know. Maybe there's truth to that. Maybe there isn't. But I, I will say this, that I am certain that it's not design, the design of God for us to know about all the bad news across all the country, all the world, all the time. That we are constantly facing and we're wondering and we're seeing where the latest mass shooting was. And we're seeing all the, the predatory behavior by the church and predatory behavior by the politicians and the corruption that's around us. And then we're told, go out, trust God, and raise your family. How in the world could we not be anxious? Well, if you feel that way, then you can very much identify with Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. You've already seen that two different occasions, once in the middle and once at the end. Daniel says it out loud verbally. He's a prop. Can we just stop for a second? This is the dude that we saw last week slept with lions, okay? But, but Daniel is high up in the politician, in, in the political machine of Babylon, which means, which means he has more information than the average bear. He is connected as to what's happening in the kingdom of Babylon, and because Babylon at this time is the center of the known world, he's connected with what's happening in the globe. And what he sees is bad news after bad news after bad news. Belshazzar has succeeded Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar has proved himself to be an impetuous, pathetic, whimsical leader. And he sees all that's happening in Babylon, all that's happening with Belshazzar, and he says, my heart is anxious. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to think about all of this. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord gives him a dream, not just so that he can have more information, but so that he can have better information. And that's what we need, church. We need better information through which we can interpret the lens of the times. And so what the Lord does to give him this better information is the Lord zooms out Daniel in this dream so that he can see the big picture of the big story, that he might be reminded of the storyline of hope and comforted in the midst of his anxiety. And that's what we're going to do today, too. We're going to try to trace through Daniel chapter 7 this very complex imagery that we're found, that's found in this apocalyptic literature, and we're going to see that it's the very basic storyline of the Bible that's being traced out, that we could zoom out and see again the storyline of hope that our anxiety might be eased, that our worries might be comforted, that our souls might be encouraged. So what is the storyline? Well, first, the nation's rage. The nation's rage. So we, we, we were in Gen Daniel chapter 6 last week. We were in Daniel chapter 7 this week. And so this is a little counterintuitive. So this is why I pointed out 
chronologically, Daniel chapter 7 actually happens after, uh, before Daniel chapter 6. Okay, so Daniel chapter 6, remember Darius is the king, Persia has taken over Babylon, but in Daniel chapter 7, this is prior, this is kind of what's leading to the conquering by Darius, that Belshazzar, the heir of Nebuchadnezzar, takes over Babylon, and it ain't going well, okay? Now, remember when we were in Daniel chapter 1, we said that there was a prophetic contemporary of Daniel that Daniel was a student of. You remember who that was? It was Jeremiah, right? That much of Jeremiah is an interpretive key to understand the book of Daniel. Well, Daniel, certainly, as he's dealing with anxiety, we know that he goes, especially in the time of Belshazzar, he has more time to study than he had during Nebuchadnezzar or that he'll have during Darius because this incompetent king doesn't use him properly. And so he uses this time to really study and to get to know more. And he's studying the book of Jeremiah. And so we can imagine that as he's receiving information and he's processing it through the lens of Jeremiah, do you remember what Jeremiah said about the exile? Jeremiah said the exile is going to come to an end. He said that the exile wasn't forever, that the Lord was going to reunite all of his people. He was going to bring them together. And so you have to think that this anxiety that's going on in Daniel, that he's wondering, okay, is the, is the exile coming to a close? Is God going to come and bring his people? Am I going to be seen as, as being in, in, in cahoots with the, with the Babylonians? Am, am I going to lose my life? How is all this going to play out? What's all this going to look like? And so into that context... Into that context, the Lord speaks to Daniel to begin setting his expectations so that he can know what's right. I love this about the Lord. The Lord, throughout the scriptures, if you read them soberly and honestly, gives you a real expectation of what's happening. This is key to any relationship. If you're going to have a good relationship with another person, you need to know the operating principles by which you're going to. If you go through unmet expectations, you're going to have a really bad relationship. And so here's the Lord setting the expectations for Daniel and setting the expectations for all of his exiled church. And he's telling Daniel that you need to be prepared. And he's telling all of us, all of us today are living as exiles here, sojourning in a foreign land, awaiting the return of Christ. And he's telling us the same thing, that you need to be prepared. That one of the main points of Daniel chapter 7, and I think Daniel chapter 7 is at the center of the book of Daniel on purpose. It's actually a hinge point. A hinge point. Uh, this is really interesting. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in a different language than chapters 1 and then 8 through, eight through 14. The, the 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. The others are written in Hebrew. And so there's meant to be this, this hinge point here in chapter 7, which makes it really the crux of the whole book. And so he's telling them right out of the gate, Daniel, I know, th- I know that you realize that the exile is going to come to an end, but what you need to realize is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. He, he begins to paint this picture of the churning of the seas. It says the four winds of heaven, and I think this is key. He's pointing out that the Lord is behind this in his sovereignty. It's the winds of heavens that are stirring up the sea, but the stirring up the great sea. Now, the great sea was thought of as the ultimate chaos machine, right? And it became synonymous with the political tumult and political turmoil that was characterized over the face of the earth. That just like you never know what the sea is going to do and what storms are going to pop up or, or what, what travails you're going to face, that you never knew what new conqueror was going to come, what new king was going to be, what coup was going to be staged, what nation was going to rise up, that really the sea, the chaos of the sea and the unpredictability of the sea is a really good metaphor for political life over the face of the earth. 
And so he begins by saying that from these churning waters, from the the chaos of this political sea, there's going to be four different kingdoms that are going to arise in succession. And these kingdoms, and I I know this because he tells us how to interpret this. I'm not making this up and shooting it from the hip. He tells us in the second half. He says these four beasts are going to come out of the sea, and these four beasts are four different kings representing four different kingdoms. And so he starts with where Daniel is. The first is uh, a beast that looks like a lion and had eagle's wings. That that is, it's ferocious and it's swift like an eagle. And this is actually used in other places in the Bible like Ezekiel to refer to Nebuchadnezzar and to Babylon. And so he's starting right there. That the first great conqueror has exiled my people. It's going to be Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to be Babylon. That's where you are now. And Daniel, I wish I could tell you it gets better from there. But there's another one that's going to rise, and it's going to rise up out of the ground, and it's going to look like a bear. It's going to be raised up on one side. So this is representative of Darius, Cyrus, and uh, the Median Persian Empire. It's being raised up on one side. Most scholars believe that this is an indication of the combining of the Persians and the Medes into one empire. The, The shorter side being the Median side, and the greater side being the Persian side. And you'll notice that it has three ribs in its mouth. And it was told, devour much flesh. What is a bear? A bear is enormous. A bear seems unconquerable. It seems unassailable. It has, it has a never-ending thirst for blood, doesn't it? This well defines Persia. If you know anything about the Persian Empire that would reign for about 300 years, this well defines them. Then, verse 6, there's a leopard. A leopard is different, isn't it? A leopard, a leopard fights in a way that is different than the way that a lion fights, different than the way that a bear fights, different than a way... A, a leopard is crawling in the grass. A leopard is, a leopard is agile. It's cunning. It's swift. It's, it's unpredictable. It's, if you go to Africa and you go on a safari, they don't worry about the lions. They don't worry about the cheetahs. They don't worry about all... The, they worry about the leopards there. Those are the ones that scare them the most because those are the ones that are hiding, stalking you from behind, and then ambushing you. Well, this describes to a T the the tactics of Alexander the Great. He's still considered by many to be the greatest military tactician in history. And that's what he did to be able to overcome Persia with a much smaller military. He does these unique tactics that that ambush him and come at the side and surprises them at night when they think it's going to happen in the morning. He breaks all the rules of war and he takes a smaller army and conquers all of the Median Persian Empire. And it goes on to say, this is really extraordinary, that it has four heads, four heads, that, meaning that it has four, four kings, okay? So after the death of Alexander the Great, Greece, the Greek empire, was actually broken into four divisions with four distinct kings. It's, it's a really amazing how accurate, and, and by the way, if you think I'm making all this, these things up, these things are almost universally accepted by numerous scholars, Jewish and Christian alike, that these are the representations, okay? I'm not just manufacturing these things as I go. This is literally how they thought as they thought about these texts. Verse 7, after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, there's a, a fourth beast. Now look, all the others have been described as animals, haven't they? All the other, You have the lion, you have the bear, you have the leopard. You get to the fourth, and there's just no words. There's no animal that they've ever seen that's been able to describe. Terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had iron teeth. It's not like a creature of the earth. It's like it's, they're, they're not men. It's like they're not people. They're, their teeth are filled with irons. Their, their claws are made of bronze. They, they crush bone without even thinking of it. 
It goes on to talk about how they're exceedingly great, and from them there come ten horns. This is, this is representative of Caesar and, and Rome, who was unlike anything the world had ever seen, and they were greater than anything that the world had ever seen, and they went on to reign for a thousand years, virtually uninterrupted and unchallenged during that time. And so you see the picture, don't you? He thinks Babylon is bad. Babylon is just the beginning. It's only going to get worse that there is a succession of kings and a succession of empires that are brutalizing the people of God. In fact, in fact, there is one that is coming. There is a climax that is still on the horizon that is even greater than anything than Daniel can see. Daniel sees Rome. And Rome is characterized as having ten, ten horns coming out of its head. Sinclair Ferguson, I think he rightly summarizes this, as saying those ten horns coming out of the head of Rome really don't just symbolize earthly kings, but they, they symbolize a completion of the spirit of Rome that will permeate the age that follows, that Rome will be of such influence. And Rome's reign was so overwhelming and so exceedingly effective and successful that the spirit of Rome will carry forward across the ages. And if you look across Western civilization, the most influential civilization in the history of the world, who are we influenced by? What spirit carries forward? Where did the idea of a senate come from? It came from Rome. All these ideas come from Rome. The spirit of the age of Rome carrying forward. But he says, he says that there are these ten horns. Three from them, there's going to look like there's a little horn that begins to grow. And it's going to grow an increasing influence, an increasing power. So that three of these horns are torn out from the root. And he's going to consolidate, consolidate these kingdoms into one kingdom. And who is this? This is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist who is believed by throughout church history to be the very embodiment of the devil, the very embodiment of Satan, to be a man fully possessed, fully owned by the powers of wickedness and evil. But don't miss, don't miss the description there in verse 8 of who, what he's going to be like. We have, I, I, I tell people all the time, Satan has really good public relations team. I mean, he, he really does. Like, we think he's this ugly, goofy cartoon with a pitchfork and a tail. Listen to this man that's described as being under the influence of Satan. It says, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. What is this talking about? This is used in scripture and ancient language to talk about wisdom. That he's going to be an exceedingly wise man. He's going to be an exceedingly insightful man. Not wise as in understanding the fear that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. But wise in understanding how to navigate political turmoil. Wise in understanding how to win people over. Wise in understanding how to deceive. Wise in understanding how people are. He's going to have great insight that the Lord is telling us from the beginning. That just like Satan is cunning and just like Satan is smart. That the Antichrist is going to be smart. He's going to be wise. And that there's a mouth speaking Great things. Now, in the interpretation, he goes on to tell us what some of these great things are. They're blasphemies against the Most High. That he's going to have a persuasive tongue. He's going to, he's going to sound good when you hear him talk. He's going to sound persuasive when you hear him talk. He's going to be enticing when you hear him talk. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to be impressive. He's going to be wise and cunning and smart. And he's going to be a smooth talker, baby. But as he talks, he's going to be talking in blasphemies against the Lord. He's going to be leading people in mass away from from the Lord. And so here is the Lord giving this vision to Daniel and giving this vision through Daniel to you and I and saying, you better be prepared. You better be prepared but because before the exile ends, before it gets better, it's going to get worse for a while. But don't just be prepared, be realistic. I think this is a real a real aspect of what the Lord is saying to Daniel. Now, can I just ask you, 
Does this sound like exactly what you want to tell an anxious person to get rid of their anxiety? (laughs) Okay, Daniel, I know that you're struggling with anxiety. Let me give you a stinking nightmare, man. There's going to be beasts coming out of the ocean. They're going to devour the people of God. To me, this feels like you have a claustrophobic man and you lock him in the box to try to make him feel better about himself. But y'all, this is an important message for us today. Because the tendency today is to try to escape the bad news that's out there. The tendency today is for us to try to self-medicate, to numb ourselves to the bad news that's out there. That, that we have all of this anxiety and all these concerns and all these things that we're worried about. We have all this bad, these bad news machines pumping in the bad news around the clock in the 24-hour news cycle and all these things going in. And the, the tendency of the church has been to stick her head in the sand. But the Lord is saying, no, that doesn't work. Does it work for you to pretend like you're not anxious? Does it work for you to pretend like there's not bad things out Does it really work for you to escape into a virtual world? No, it doesn't. You can self-medicate all day long, but you're going to sober up and the bad news is still there. You can escape into a virtual world all day long, but someday you're going to have to come into reality and the bad news is still there. It actually increases your anxiety because you know when you're lying to yourself. No. The Lord is saying, pick up your head. Expect what's going to happen. Be realistic about the reality of the hardships that are going to be faced. But, 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 don't so focus on them that you can't see that they're a part of a bigger story. Be realistic about the hard things, the bad things, the evil things that are happening around you. But then back up, zoom out, and see that these bad things are a part of something bigger. You see, the nations rage, but God reigns. The nations rage, but, but God reigns. So think about the picture here. The seas are churning. The nations are raging. Daniel, Daniel is worrying. But what is the Lord doing? What is the Lord doing? I love this so much. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, this is the Lord, the Ancient of Days took his seat. Do you see it? There's no anxiety in heaven, y'all. The Lord is not pacing back and forth, wearing out the carpet on the streets of gold. The Lord is not wringing his hands, as Alan Easterwood often tells us. He's not mulling over in his mind, playing out all the different scenarios, hoping that somehow things work out in the end. The Lord is seated upon his throne, watching and maneuvering and orchestrating all of creation so that ultimately his will comes to be, so that his glory is amplified, and so that his people are secured. That one of the main things that Daniel is trying, in verses 9 through 12, this is the main point. You understand that? This is the main point of the book of Daniel. This is the main point of Daniel chapter 7. That God isn't like the nations. God isn't like them. How are they described? The nations are described as beasts. Beasts, not people. Not humans, beasts. That is, the the Bible recognizes that all people have the image of God, but these people are so immoral. They are so debased. They are so so characterized by the debauchery of their age that the image of God has been so defaced in them that it's as though they're animals. They've been dehumanized. And by the way, By the way, 
there ought to be a connection in our minds with the, with the rationality of naturalism today. Naturalists today are trying to convince us in the secular age that all we are are just really intelligent animals that have to live on our instincts and impulses. It's a dehumanization. It's the same thing that the Bible is, the way the Bible is describing those beasts that characterize the demonic oppression on the earth. But how is the Lord described? There's meant to be a contrast. His clothing was wide as snow. They are characterized by beastly, animal-like behavior, but the Lord is described as pure and holy and good and moral and righteous and beautiful. That here is the nations raging and clamoring at each other and biting at each other's throats. Here are the nations chasing after their animal instincts. But the Lord, the Lord is pure. He is undefiled. He is holy. He is righteous. The nations, the nations are living by their whims and by their impulses and by their instincts. Oh my goodness, what a word for us in the 21st century. Living by their impulses. They think that whatever they feel, they ought to act on. Whatever they want, they ought to have. Whatever they desire, they need to chase after. They're living just by whatever their belly says to do. But who is the Lord? The hair of his head is like pure wool. That is, the Lord isn't living and acting on impulse and instinct. The Lord is one who is wise. The Lord is one who is acting sober-mindedly. The Lord is the one who is acting in perfect rationality, with perfect wisdom, that all the things that are happening on the earth are not some reaction by God. God is not the red-faced maniac of heaven. The Lord is one who is self-controlled and self-aware and leading from a place of complete and total wisdom. The nations, the nations, they believe that they live unaccountable. That they will answer to no one. That they can have whatever they want to have. They can conquer whomever they want to conquer. That they themselves are unassailable and unconquerable. But what is shown there in the court of the Lord? It says, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A stream of fire. The wills of his throne are characterized as fire. And a fire that, that streams forth in judgment that will wipe out all of the nations who believe they are unaccountable before him. All the kings who stand before the Lord blaspheming him in arrogance and believing that they are the ones that are owed bowed down, being bowed down to and being exalted. That the judgment of the Lord and the accountability of the Lord will not escape a single congressman or a single president or a single ruler that has ever lived on the face of the earth. He's not like them. We've already seen that the four mightiest empires that we've ever known, Babylon and Persia and Greece and, and Rome, all of them come and all of them go. All of them are here tomorrow and gone the next. Every single one of us, not a single one of us, even lived to see the, the success of the greatest empire, Rome, live a single day. But who is the Lord? The Lord, he is the ancient of days. He was there yesterday. He is here today and he is there tomorrow. He was seated on his throne when Babylon was on the reign. He would be seated on his throne when Rome was on the throne and he will be seated on his throne for all eternity, forever and ever. Amen. God isn't like the nations. God is in control. God is in control. God is reigning. It is his action that is stirring the violence of the sea and the chaos of the sea. It is by his direction that the nations are rising and the kings are ascending. And it is by his direction they will come to an end. See, this is the point. 
This is the point. The nations rage and the kings scream out and they beat their chest and they do their victory parades, but they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. They only have a temporary belief, self-deception that they are in charge, but the Lord, the Lord is actually, actually in charge. In fact, in fact, throughout the text, the word given, you see it there in verse 12, verse 11, the end of verse 11, the word, word given comes up uh, eight times in chapter 7. It's there, and it's actually, this is the same word. When it says prolonged for a season, this is actually given, that they were given a season. If you were to see this in Hebrew, this is, these are the exact same words. The translators are just helping us understand what's going on. And, and here's the intent. The intent is that you would recognize that behind it all, even though Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a big deal, the Lord gave him his kingdom. Even though Darius thought he was in charge, the Lord gave him his dominion. The Lord gave them the ability to be the exercises of his, his judgment. The Lord gave to Rome the influence. Th th these things were not happening outside of the Lord's uh, providence. Th th these things aren't happening outside of the Lord's rule. The Lord is in them all. And, and then when the Antichrist raises up and the Antichrist believes that he's going to be some great inconquerable God of a man, he'll soon find that he was only allowed for a mere season. That that's the point. They were given over to be burned with fire, and then the rest of them are given for a prolonged season. That in other words, the Lord gave them all of their all that was happening. The Lord orchestrated all that is happening. But 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 for every kingdom and every king, the Lord put an expiration date. That they were only going to believe they were in charge for a little while, and the Lord the Lord was going to prove to them that their dominion would not last. Church family. Is that not solid hope for an anxious age? Is that not solid hope for an anxious age? That God is in charge? See, what caused so much anxiety in Daniel is he didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. He didn't know what was going to become of Babylon. He didn't know what was going to become of Belshazzar. He didn't know what was going to become of Persia or Israel. He didn't know what was going to come. And that's the same thing that causes all of our anxiety, isn't it? We don't know what tomorrow will do. We don't know what tomorrow will say. We don't know what Iran's going to do tomorrow, do we? We don't know what our president's going to do tomorrow. We, we don't know where the next mass, gun, mass murdering gunman's going to show up. It might be at our kid's high school. It might be at our workplace. It might be at our Walmart. We don't know. We don't know what the doctor's going to say tomorrow. We don't know what our husband or our wife is going to say tomorrow. We don't even know if there's going to be tomorrow. We don't know if our children are going to rebel. We don't know if our lives are going to fall apart. We don't know if we're going to get a promotion. We don't know what tomorrow is going to do. But the point of Daniel 7 is that even though we don't know what tomorrow is going to do, we know what the Lord is going to do because he has given us the end of the book. He's zooming us out to show us, yes, yes, the nations are raging. Yes, the news is bad. Yes, the age is evil. But the Lord, the Lord is seated upon the throne and the Lord is orchestrating all these things for the glory of his name and for the good of his people so we can know you see for Daniel for Daniel there was nothing that he could have wanted more than a better king than the one that he had how much of our anxiety would be alleviated by a great king how much of our anxiety is politically induced because we don't know what's going to happen I've been in y'all's houses. I know how much Fox News is on. It worries us to death, doesn't it? It worries us to death. This is Daniel. This is Daniel, man. 
And so here is Daniel longing for a greater king, longing for one who is benevolent and wise and good, longing for some certainty and some security, longing for a kingdom that isn't so flighty and so undependable. And so the Lord, in the midst of this conversation about his sovereignty, he's saying the nation's rage and God reigns, he's telling us that Jesus is going to rule, that there is, in fact, a better king that is coming. He's talking here about the Messiah, and he's telling us, who the Messiah is going to be. Who's the Messiah going to be? He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Now, this is not the first appearance, and it certainly won't be the last, as we're going to see, of the phrase, the clouds of heaven. If you look down, Psalm 104. Matter of fact, I didn't have space on here, but Isaiah 19.1 says the same thing. This is talking about the Lord. He, God, lays the beams of the chambers of the water. He makes the clouds what? His chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. That the Bible understands God to ride on the clouds. And so who is the Messiah going to be? The Messiah is going to be God himself. How can Daniel trust this new king that's going to come and establish this new kingdom and bring them out of exile? The way that he's going to be able to establish it is finally God himself is going to come and he's going to ride in on the clouds on a chariot of fire and he's going to descend to his people and he's going to rule over them. But he's not just this, that's not all. Who else is the Messiah? With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of of man, like a son of man. So, so how is God, infinite, infinite God, almighty God, omnipresent God, omnipotent God, how is he going to come into the presence of humanity, living among those of us who are limited by space and time? How is he going to do that? He's going to become the son of a man. The son of of a man. And who is the one who is God, but also the Son of a man? It is the Lord Jesus. How do we know? Mark chapter 14, Jesus tells us. This isn't a mystery. This isn't some great Da Vinci code that we're trying to crack in the Bible. Jesus has cracked the code, man. Jesus is the Son of Man. In fact, in fact, this was Jesus' very favorite title for himself. Jesus referred to himself throughout the four Gospels as the Son of Man more than he referred to himself as any other title. And this is who the apostles believed him to be. How do we know that? John tells us because John, like Daniel, is given a vision. In fact, John uses a lot of the language from Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9 in the Revelation, and he opens the Revelation. He opens his word to that suffering, anxious, martyring church with these words. Verse 7, Revelation chapter 1, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Y'all, he's really coming. And he's really God. In fact, in fact, we know better than Daniel knew, don't we? Because not just is he coming, he has come. He has come. Do you understand when it talks here, it begins to tell us what the Messiah is going to get. So, so it's, it's importing the imagery of Psalm chapter 2. I've, I've referred to that a lot. I think it would be a really interesting parallel study with the book of Daniel and Psalm chapter 2 and the way it's fulfilled throughout the book of Daniel. I think that would be, I'm going to leave that to some of you Bible scholars. But in Psalm chapter 2, the nations are raging. They're raging and they're raging and they're raging. But the Lord ultimately 
concludes Psalm chapter 2 by judging the nations and presenting from the nations a kingdom to his son. The almighty God giving to his son a gift of the kingdoms. And that, that's what's happening here in Daniel chapter 7. What have the nations been raging for? They've been raging for control of the world, right? We've talked about that. They're raging to have that one kingdom that nobody else can conquer. They're, they're raging to, to be able to finally not have to worry to own from sea to shining sea to all the universe, to have all of the treasury in their storehouse, to have all of the gold in their possession, to have all of the might in their military. They're raging that all the peoples of the earth and all the languages of the earth would profess them to be the king of kings. Only Jesus will get that. But Jesus Jesus will get that. Listen to what it says. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion, an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, if you've been keeping up with us in the big story, you know that there's been a promise made a long time ago to another king by the name of David. And it was a promise, and guess, there, guess what? There's no, there's no person from the line of David sitting on the throne when Daniel's writing. Can you imagine why he's so anxious? It looks like the promises of God may fail. This is what exile does, y'all. And you ought to be able to identify with it because all of us are living there. Exile tries to convince you that the promises of God won't come true. Exile tries to convince you that God is not trustworthy. Exile was tempting Daniel to believe that there would be no person seated upon the throne of David. And then, and then, and then, he zooms him out and he shows him the Lord Jesus after his ascension, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, being presented to the Ancient of Days to sit at his right hand where he will reign over his people with dominion forever. And there will be no threats and there will be no conquerors that will be able to come against him. We can see it even more clearly than Daniel ever could. We already know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to a virgin. We already know that Jesus walked and endured in every way that we endured and did not sin. We already know that Jesus went to that cursed tree and was nailed for my dead and for yours. And we already know that after three days in the belly of the earth, the Lord Jesus was raised up out of the grave. Forty days later, ascending to the right hand of the Lord. We already know this. So whatever it is that you're, that's tempting you to be anxious, whatever it is that's worrying you sick, the application that Daniel invites for us to make is to look at the resurrected Lord and to recognize, to recognize that if the Lord kept his promise once, the Lord will keep his promise again. If the Lord is trustworthy in the deliverance of his son from the grave, the Lord is trustworthy to deliver you from your cross. See, that's the main application. The nations rage, God reigns, Jesus rules, so we're okay. So we're okay. I actually think that it's really important to note here that Daniel does not expect the church to miss the tribulation. He doesn't expect that. He doesn't expect the church to miss out on the horrific rule of the Antichrist. 
Nobody in church history believed that up until the 1800s. 1850 years of church history, nobody believed that until dispensationalism took root, which is a $3 word to say this is not a theological system that I ascribe to. That what you see here is that the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to make war with the saints. Not with the world, with the saints, right? And he's going to prevail over them. Look down in verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High. That's, that's the Antichrist. And shall what? Wear out the saints. The word wear out, it means to oppress. That we will live under the oppression of the Antichrist. But the idea here, the idea here is not primarily that we will endure the tribulation. The idea here is not merely that we're going to suffer under, under the rule of this wicked Antichrist. That's not even the main point. The main point, the main point is that the bad won't last. That there is a time limit. That he shall change the times and the laws. This is at the end of the verse here. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's something like three and a half years, which might be symbolic. It might be literal. It says the same thing. There is an expiration date on the rule of evil and pain and suffering on this land that is going to go away because the rule of Christ Jesus is going to come and reign victoriously. You see... As I look, this horn made war with the saints and the prevailed over them. He's wearing out the saints. He's exhausting the saints. He's prevailing over the saints. But then there's an until. Until, until, until the ancient of days came. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Yes, yes, the days are evil. Yes, the bad stuff is happening all right. Yes, there's so many things for us to be anxious about and worried about. Until, until our ally arrives. And as weak an army as we are, when our ally shows up as the resurrected Christ with his legions of angels, we will ride with him into victory. That means, that means we're okay. <laughs> we're okay. Doesn't matter how weak you are. Doesn't matter how worried you are. Doesn't matter how messed up you think you are. We're okay. Does the trauma of your childhood or the realization that you're never going to have your dad's acceptance try to convince you that you're not okay? There is a day soon coming when you will rest in the arms of your Heavenly Father. Does the thought of sending your kids out into a world filled with predators try to convince you that you're not okay? Isaiah chapter 11 says that in the new heavens and the new earth, they will play with the predators of the world like they're stuffed animals. Does the grief that you know because you buried your child and you buried your mom and you buried your dad and you buried your husband, does the grief that you know because of the, the hardship that you face try to threaten you and tell you that you're not okay? Revelation closes. The book ends by saying the tear ducts will close up. The sadness will go away. And joy and jubilation will spread over the face of the earth. The bad won't last. There's a time limit and an expiration date. And brothers and sisters, it is coming soon. That's what we need in an anxious world. To remember that the bad won't last and the glory won't end. Think back to how it starts. Verse 9. He sees the, the main point. He sees the Lord. And the Lord is taking a seat. But there, there, before he gets to the seat of the Lord, what does he see? I looked and thrones, uninhabited, empty thrones were placed 
right there by the throne of the Ancient of Days. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you can come and not live as a peasant eating the scraps off the floors of heaven. That's better than what I deserve, and that's better than what you deserve. But the position that you're going to have in glory is not a servant at the feet of the Lord Jesus. It is a throne surrounded by the myriads of the myriads of angels where you can join in with heaven's song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That today, today we struggle and today we faint and today we, we feel like we're not going to make it. But there is a day coming in which we will be exalted with the risen Christ. And that crown will be of unfading glory. And that glory will never pass away. He says in verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive. Remember, the giving of the Lord is a theme throughout Daniel chapter 7. The Lord is going to give you something too in his sovereignty. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. How long? How long? There's an expiration date on Nebuchadnezzar. There's an expiration date on Alex the Great. There's an expiration date on Darius and Cyrus. There's an expiration date on Caesar. But there's no expiration date on you forever and ever. The court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall not be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom in the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to whom? To whom? The people of the saints of the Most High. Those against whom the Antichrist was prevailing. He will bow before for and they will rule with Christ and we together with Jesus will tell the Antichrist and every beast of the age it is finished Jesus is Lord so I don't know how anxious you are I don't know how worried you are I don't know how convinced you are that you're not okay but this morning if you can zoom out and you can see the big picture of the big story you can be certain, brothers and sisters, that your story will end happily ever after. Can we pray the Lord together? Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.